This morning we come to the end of chapter 10, a pretty important uh, turning point chapter in the letter to the Hebrews, and we'll uh, wrap it up here this morning looking at verses 32 to 39 of that great letter. We heard in our New Testament reading Jesus talk about a little while. Well, here's a little while again, um, and also some recollection of things for the, the readers, but also for us today here. So let me read this for us. It's God's very living word. Hebrews 10, verses 32 to 39. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. Forget a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So ends the reading hear of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. As always, may he write it upon our hearts so that it will bear fruit in our lives. As we come before God's word, let me again pray for us. Father in heaven, bless us now as we come before your word. Speak to us. As always, we ask that you would fulfill your very own promise that when your word goes out, it does not return to you empty, but instead accomplishes all that you have purposed for it and is successful in everything for which you have sent it out. For us, we ask that you would pour out your Holy Spirit here this morning upon us to open our eyes to see and our ears to hear everything that you would have us see and hear from your word this morning. Make it a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we can walk according to everything that it teaches us. Our Father, we ask this in Christ's holy and wonderful name. Amen. Well, again, as I mentioned, this morning we come to the end of Hebrews 10 and to the third section of a longer section that starts back in verse 19. Kind of a transition in Hebrews from the more teaching part of the book or the more doctrinal part of the book to the more application section, the practice part of the book that begins kind of in chapter 11. I don't want to give you the impression that Hebrews is that easy to divide, because it's not. We talked about this weeks ago when we started. There's a whole lot of application in the so-called doctrinal section. Lots of warnings, lots of encouragement, lots of teaching. And the same thing if you read ahead in the coming weeks, as I hope you do, in Hebrews 11, 12, and 13, uh, there's a lot of teaching, but there's a lot of doctrine as well, a lot of powerful truths to be learned. But the emphasis does shift a bit from this very powerful presentation of Christ, of of Jesus as superior to everything and what that means, to the application of that and what that means for our lives as believers. 
So looking back a little bit, if we go back to verses 19 to 25, that paragraph, it was kind of a summary of what the author had taught up to that point. And then a mutual call, all of us, let us, it says, pursue faith, pursue hope, and pursue love. With a strong warning in verses 26 to 31, not to go on deliberately sinning, as some seem to be doing, by trampling on the Son of God, by profaning His blood, by outraging the Holy Spirit, and receive that certain and terrible and fiery judgment that comes to those who do go on deliberately sinning. Because, as the author says, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So having reminded us what he's taught us, having called us to faith, hope, and love, having warned us not to go on deliberately sinning, the author then, (laughs) he's brought us up, he's kind of warned us a little bit, now he's going to bring us back up again and encourage us in our faith. And encourage us to a confident kind of faith, a kind of faith that allows us to endure until the coming one comes, until Jesus comes, or as we saw in verse 25, the day that draws near. I was thinking about this idea of endurance. It's not something we typically talk about from God's word, endurance. The closest topic to endurance that we talk about is perseverance. We talk about perseverance. We talk about it when we discuss tulip, the perseverance of the saints. And and perseverance is part of the idea of endurance. I looked up just the ESV use of the words endure, endures, enduring, endured, endurance, over 130 times in the ESV translation of Scripture. And as I kind of perused those Scripture references, three ideas kind of jump out of, what, of how endurance is used in Scripture. <coughs> One way it's used is to talk about eternity. The Lord endures forever. Or Psalm 136, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Something that endures forever is something that lasts for all of eternity, and it's almost, it is exclusively used of God himself. Another way that the word is used is, is as a way of just putting up with something for a period of time. Um, Peter talks about how it's better to Endure suffering for being a Christian than for doing something wicked, than for sinning. Endure whatever you're going through. Put up with it, if you will. Jesus himself endured the cross for our salvation. He put up with that humiliation, that curse, as we have read and sung about already this morning. And then that third idea, persevering. Keeping at something. Keeping at it diligently. Keeping at it tirelessly. And it's presented to us in Scripture as a positive quality for Christians to have. Jesus tells his followers that others will hate them because of him, but that those who endure till the end, who persevere, will be saved. Paul tells us that endurance produces character and prays that we might be strengthened for endurance. Because if we endure, we will reign with Christ. So if we persevere, if we keep at it, if we're diligent. John in Revelation affirms the patient endurance that he shares with his readers in the opening. And then in the letters to the churches. Ephesus, 
Thyatira, and Philadelphia are all commended for their patient endurance, their persistence, their perseverance. And then later in the book, as we saw when we studied it here on Wednesday nights, there are certain things that happen, certain things revealed in the vision, certain troubles and traumas that are about to come, and the author kind of stops and says, this calls for endurance. (laughs) This calls for perseverance. This calls for diligent, tireless enduring. Endurance is a little bit foreign as well to our culture today, our society. Other than distance runners who are celebrated for it, who, who is celebrated for endurance? We're an instant gratification kind of culture. Give it to me now. I want success now. I want pleasure now. So merely enduring <laughs> and the long wait and the frustration and the tirelessness and the diligence that's, that that requires, well, that's not very pleasant for us. And if it's not pleasant, we don't want it. We want victory now. We want change now. We want better now. But yet, over and over again, it seems Scripture calls us to just endure, to persevere, to stick with it. We're not eternal, so endurance for us has those two other meanings. Sometimes just to be willing to put up with suffering and persecution, but also the idea of being willing to persevere, to be willing to stick at it, not to give up, and to wait for the reward that does come with persevering endurance. It's the call of Scripture, and it's the call of our author in this brief paragraph this morning. He tells us to remember what you've endured, remember what you put up with in the past, but he also calls us to endurance, to perseverance. It's not the endurance of wishful thinking. It's not the endurance of grudgingly waiting, feeling like we've been left out. The author wants us instead to be confident. Endure with confidence. Persevere with confidence. And be confident because of the very things he's been teaching us about for, lo, these ten chapters. Things that he's been reminding us of. Our Savior, Jesus, who is superior to any prophet that's come before, to any priest or king, better than any sacrifice. And because of that, he saved us once and for all. If those things are true, and they are true, than the things that he's called us to in this last section of chapter 10 are things we need to to bear in mind. Indeed, to draw near to God in full assurance of our faith, from verse 22, to hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, in verse 23, to encouragingly love one another as the day of Christ's coming approaches, as we saw in verses 24 and 25. So we should have a confident faith as Christians, a confident faith that enables us to endure. And that's the idea that I want to look at this morning, the confident endurance of faith. The way the author calls us to this kind of confident endurance is to encourage us first to look back, recall some things, but then he also encourages us to look forward. Look forward to some rewards. Look forward to something that's happening in the future. 
and uses those two things as kind of a, a frame, if you will, to call us in the present to endure. Remember what you went through in the past. Look forward to what will happen. In the meantime, endure. Endure with confidence. Endure with hope. Endure with love. <clears throat> so the past. Let's look at the past. He begins the passage by calling us to recall the former days when after we were enlightened. He's given us a severe warning. Don't go on sinning deliberately. Don't fall into the hands of the living God. The antidote to this is confident, enduring faith. The author is going to express his own faith that those who are his readers are not those who shrink back and are destroyed like those who go on sinning. But to encourage them in this, he again calls upon them to recall their own past, their own former days. What about them? Well, first, it's when they were enlightened. They had come to hear of and to learn of and to receive the truths of the Christian faith. They had heard and responded to the call of the gospel. They had understood the sinfulness of their own sin, its consequences in rebellion against God. So they'd repented of that sin turned away from it, received by faith the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay for their sins, believed that by his life, both obedience to God and resurrection from death, that they also have life and life eternal. Remember when you were enlightened. In other words, these are Christians. This distinguishes the readers from those described in verse 26 as those who have knowledge of the truth but are not enlightened. They've heard the truth, but they don't believe it. So they're Christians. What happened after they came to faith? What well, says in verse 32, they endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Hard struggle here has the idea of, of a conflict, almost like a boxing match or a wrestling match some sort of athletic competition, maybe even something like a skirmish or a war. They endured a hard struggle, a battle, a difficulty that was severe. It's not a positive contest. It's not a game. This is, this is a fight. This is a struggle. And it's accompanied by suffering. And that struggle and that suffering is, is described in verses 33 and 34 in a neat little chiasm, we've talked about these before, where there's an outer idea and then an inner idea. And the idea that the author's trying to get us to look at is the one in the middle. It, it comes together. It's a simple one here. He reminds them of what they've suffered individually. Those are the outer two ideas. But what they've also suffered with others conveys the idea. He, he focuses on suffering with others to, to drive home again the idea that, that we're all in this together. It echoes the call back in verse 25 not to neglect meeting with one another. Again, we're not lone rangers in the Christian faith. We're faith that comes together as the body of Christ. And so we rejoice together and we suffer together. We rejoice with those who rejoice. We weep with those who weep. And this is what the readers themselves have experienced. Personally, what they've gone through, 
It's at the beginning of verse 33 and kind of in the middle there of verse 34. They've been publicly exposed to reproach and to affliction. They've also joyfully accepted the plundering of their property. In other words, they've been publicly humiliated. They've made, been made fun of. They've been criticized for their faith. They've been ridiculed. They've been looked down upon as second-class citizens. And many of you have probably experienced this as well as, as believers. You stand up for your faith <clears throat> in some way, shape, or form, and people make fun of you. They laugh at you. They ridicule you. You're an ignorant believer. You're, you've got blind faith in, in superstitions and, and myths. It's almost certain for every single one of us at some point in our lives to have experienced this kind of reproach, this kind of ridicule as we stand for our faith. But they also suffered affliction. <clears throat> and that word points to some sort of actual suffering, some sort of actual thing that happened to them. It's a broad word. It includes a lot of different things. But again, it's something that all of us here, as I look around the room, I know that everyone here has experienced some sort of affliction, some sort of trial, some sort of difficulty that challenges our faith as we're experiencing it. It brings us down. It, it, it makes us even possibly want to doubt. Turn away. All the more because others can see it and wonder why you, in the midst of all this trial and suffering, why do you keep clinging to this faith? Why do you continue to believe in a, in a loving God? We've all experienced this in one way, shape, or form. For some of you, it's been some sort of severe sickness or disease or something that you've had to work through physically. I look around and I see others who've had incredible financial distress. Others who, people that you love, have abandoned you in some way, shape, or form. Relationships broken. Others who suffered the unexpected death of, of a loved one in an unexpected way, in an unexpected time. There are other things. We lose our jobs. We lose our homes. We, we get in a car accident. We experience all sorts of different trials and difficulties that would drive other people away from God. But we recall those days. And our faith is not shaken. Those can be circumstantial kinds of things that happen to us. But the author also points to the mutual affliction that they shared together as the people of God. The plundering of their property, goods that were stolen, possibly their homes as well. Now commentators debate what the author is referring to here and they want to pin it down to some actual event. The persecution of Nero in the mid-60s. <clears throat> but I think it's probably broader than that. It's just the common experience that we even see in the early church and scripture. The opposition that we see, for example, in Acts. I mean, who was Paul before he became a Christian? Someone who went out and arrested Christians and put them in prison. Someone who would confiscate their goods. And certainly that happened to him after his conversion. He was put in jail. He was beaten, lashed with a whip, stoned. And we read about these kinds of things for believers in the early church. 
Now, you may not have experienced this personally, having your goods and property stolen and taken from you just because you are a Christian. But I think some of us here have. In different ways, and you can see it growing in a broader sense in our society. The bakers, the florists, who are ridiculed and and have their uh, businesses or their wealth fined and money taken from them just because of standing up for their faith. Jobs lost, income lost, in effect stolen from them because they stand up for their faith. So not only did they go through these things personally, but they stood with those who did. He calls them in verses 33 and 34, partners. They partnered with those treated like this. How did they partner with them? They had compassion on them. They took care of them. They visited them in prison. Stood with them in such a way that they received the same reproach, the same ridicule that those others had received. And he tells why they were willing to do this at the end of 34. You were willing to do this because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What did they have? Well, they had Jesus. They had eternal life. They had the blessings of all the promises of the new world to come and all that goes with it. So the author encourages them, recall these things that you've been through in the past. You made it through. You looked to something that you had in the future that was better than what they were trying to take away from you. And you persevered in your faith. So look to the past. Look to what you've been through before. You've been through this before. You've made it through before. But also look to the future, look to the promises of what's coming. And this is something the author's been doing over and over and over in this book, calling us to look to the promises of God that are ours by faith in Christ. Does it here again? Hope for the future is what enabled these readers and enables us to endure affliction. And it's what will continue to enable them to endure affliction. He quotes in verses 37 and 38 from Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4, which we read, but also makes a reference to Isaiah 26, verse 20. This yet a little while idea from verse 37 uh, refers to Isaiah 26, and many think that as he does this, he's referring to that whole chapter, which is a chapter about the people of God, once again, suffering uh, attack. They're under attack from their enemies. They're under affliction from their enemies. And the Lord says, just hide away for a little while and I'll come and rescue you. So people think the author is recalling to mind this promise from Isaiah 26, but then he quotes, and he quotes rather freely. I'm not going to go through the details. He doesn't quote exactly from Habakkuk. He switches some things around for rhetorical purposes. But he quotes from Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4. The coming one will come and will not delay. This is an echo of verse 25. The day drawing near, the day of Christ, the day of Christ's second coming. So remember, look forward to that day that's coming, the blessings that come with it. Christ is coming again. The blessings that are yours, that come when he comes again, are coming. And that day is coming soon. It's a little while. It's an echo also of what Jesus said to his disciples in 
John 16 that we read earlier. Partly Jesus is talking about going away for a little while in death and coming back in resurrection. But if you look at the context, the broader picture of what Jesus is talking about in John 16, he's talking about going to the Father and then a little while coming back. It's a little while. It's a little while. Hang on. Christ is coming again. The coming is soon, and, should, and that should be our attitude. Yes, it's been 2,000 years. But the mindset of the Christian is to be Christ, Christ is coming, and that day is coming soon. In the grand scheme of eternity, 2,000 years is a blip. 1,000 years is like a day. A day is like 1,000 years. Christ is coming, and he's coming soon. Not something we seem to emphasize in Reformed circles, the the imminent return of Jesus. We don't talk about it. We don't, it doesn't seem to motivate us or or animate our faith, and it should. Christ is coming soon, and that means something for how we live our lives. Yes, it does refer in part to the coming in judgment at 70 AD, but it's a broader reference here to the day of the Lord, the day that's coming. The coming one will come in a little while. Since it is, how will you live? How ought we to live as Christians? And so looking back to what we've been through, looking forward to what's coming, the author uses these things to tell us how to live. Live with confidence and endurance. Live with faith. Calls upon the promise that's quoted there in verse 38 from Habakkuk. My righteous one will live by faith. He adds that little pronoun in there. My righteous one. To emphasize the fact that this is God's attitude towards you. You are God's righteous one. My, his possession. What does it mean when God talks about people as his possession? It means he loves them. It means he cares for them. It means he's looking out for them. My righteous one will live by faith. By contrast, the one who shrinks back, my soul takes no pleasure in. The author makes interesting use of Habakkuk here. Paul uses it a couple times at least, Romans and Galatians, to remind us of the great truth that we are justified by faith alone. We're made right by God. We're considered righteous by faith alone, not by works or by any other means. But here in Hebrews, the author uses it to describe how we live. We live by faith. Paul uses it for justification. Here the author uses it for sanctification and really for perseverance. The whole Christian life is lived then by faith. From beginning to end, we live by faith. Endurance is by faith. Perseverance is by faith. So then he gives us encouragement in verses 35 and 36. Don't throw away your confidence. Your confidence has great reward. Don't throw away that confident faith that allows you to have access to the very throne room of God. Back in verse 22. Don't throw it away by sinning deliberately. Don't throw it away by letting suffering or persecution, hardship, 
sow the seeds of doubt and despair in your hearts and minds. Instead, you need endurance. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. This is the idea of perseverance. They put up with hard struggle and sufferings in verse 32. But now they're called to persevere, to keep at it. Don't give up day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And this endurance in doing the will of God leads to receiving what God has promised. All the blessings of faith in Christ Jesus. Doing the will of God. What is doing the will of God? Jesus tells us in John chapter 6, verse 40, this is the will of God, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. That is the will of God. Again, a reference to the future. Look forward to that day when we are raised from death to life, and to eternal life forever with each other, with God, with Christ. So the author is saying, looking to the past, you endured suffering before. Looking to the past and remembering what you've been through helps you endure whatever's coming at you right now. There's a certain sense in, in which we have to get better at enduring suffering as we get older. We've been through it before. It's tough, it's hard, it's painful, but we know we can get through it. But also look to the future reward, to receive what is promised at the time when the coming one comes. In the meantime, live by faith and by a confident faith. Don't throw away your confidence. Live by a confident faith that endures. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, enlightened, as he says in verse 32, by the Holy Spirit, then the author himself has confidence for you And for all of us who believe, he says it there at the end in verse 39. (laughs) We are not those who shrink back. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That is not us. We have faith. We have confident faith. We have the ability to persevere, not just by ourselves, but together. We help one another. We encourage one another along the way. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed but we are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. What a promise. That's not just the author speaking to you. That's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is confident that if you have faith in Christ, you are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who persevere by faith and preserve their souls. So do you believe? (laughs) then be confident. Don't be arrogant. Be confident. Do you believe in Christ? Then endure. Be confident in your faith and endure in your faith. That raises a very logical question. What is faith? God willing, that is the topic we will tackle next week. Stay tuned. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, our Father Almighty, our Creator, our King, our Savior, and our Friend, 
our brother in Christ, our helper in the Holy Spirit, we come before you and give you thanks for the great work that you have done. It is easy for us like Habakkuk, for us like the psalmist so many times, for us like Job, for us like so many of the saints so often throughout the history of everything. It is easy for us to become discouraged. It is easy for us to to be overwhelmed at times, it seems, by the circumstances and events of life around us. The things that happen to us, and by contrast, the success, the apparent success of the wicked, those who do not follow you. Help us to remember how you have protected and preserved us, kept us through difficulties in the past, that even though we do walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no fear, for you are with us, your rod and your staff. Indeed, do guide us. You would prepare for us a table even in the presence of our enemies so that we can sit down and feast without fear. Help us to be confident. Help us to endure in our faith. We cannot do it in our own strength. Pour out the Holy Spirit and help us to lift one another up and encourage one another as we pursue that kind of confident enduring faith. We ask it in Christ's wonderful holy name. Amen.